Well, this morning we are going to focus on one of our favourite subjects as people, which is the future. Um, I don't know about you, but one of my most used apps on my phone is not the phone, but the weather app. Yes? What's the weather going to be tomorrow? What's the weather going to be on Christmas? What's it going to be like when we go on holidays? 51% of Aussies aged in their 30s to 40s say that they take horoscope predictions either very or somewhat seriously. Many average Aussies will admit to having consulted tarot card readers. Humans have an almost insatiable obsession with the future. Why? Why do we, unlike any other creature, long to know the future? And it is unique to humans, right? My dog couldn't care less about the future of interest rates. It's just, where's the next meal? What is it that makes us so obsessed? Well, it's actually bound up in us being human, being made in the image of God, distinct from all other creatures. To be made in the image of God is a rich thing, and part of that is to actually rule over creation, was the mandate God gave to humanity. And so we long to know the future that we might actually rule over it, or, more in reality, adapt to it be able to see what's coming and try and live in light of it. So the weather app tells you that it's going to be 40 degrees and you try, if you're a builder who told me this yesterday, you try and skip work, you try and get to the beach. Um, A doctor tells you that this sunspot could be nasty if left, so you take it out and you stop going to the beach. What you know about the future impacts our lives in the present. Well, this morning... I want to tell you about your future. I want to tell you about what you can be sure will be written into the chapters of your life ahead. But this future telling is nothing like star signs, tarot cards, tea leaves. This future telling comes from the very mouth of God himself. The God who knows the end from the beginning and sovereignly works out every little detail to achieve that plan. That is what the Bible is. It is a revelation that's bringing us into knowing God, who we wouldn't otherwise know, God who is spirit, and what he is doing in the world in the future. That's the reason why you ought to take this future telling this morning seriously. This is not a TED talk about the future of the environment. This is God addressing you about the future of all humanity. And as though that isn't reason enough to sit up and listen, God has given us proof that what the Bible is saying about the future can and must be trusted, that it is the authority on the future. Christianity is not a call to a blind leap of faith. Just have faith, it'll all be okay. Not at all. It's rather a call to step out into the light based upon the evidence for the truthfulness of the Christian claims. And the central piece of evidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The dead man who came back to life, never to die again. And so before we come to what the Bible has to say about your future, I want us to look back to the central event of our pastoral reality, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because this is actually what the Bible keeps doing. Before it does the let me tell you about the future, it looks back to let me tell you about what has happened. 
In fact, it was happening even as the New Testament was being written. Make sure you've got 1 Corinthians 15 open in front of you. It is the longest, most extended treatment on the resurrection in the New Testament. And I want you to notice how it actually comes together. If you're new to the Bible, this is not just a bunch of spiritual pithy sayings. This was a letter written by a man to a particular group of people in a historical context. In fact, I've got a timeline for you here. Jesus dies and his race life, 30 AD. The Apostle Paul heads to the city of Corinth to plant the church with the news of Jesus in 50, and he writes this letter just five years later. So when Paul goes into Corinth to preach what's called the gospel, the news of Jesus' death, resurrection, it's only a 20-year window between the events. That's nothing. I mean, you remember the Sydney Olympics? Anyone yet? Kathy Freeman? You remember where you were? You remember what the city was like? That was more than 20 years ago. This gap between the events and Paul taking it to Corinth is nothing. But here's the thing. The window of time actually gets shorter still. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 1. He's writing to them in 55 AD to remind them of the gospel that he preached. The gospel, verse 2, by which they are saved. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Notice that. When Paul goes to Corinth in 50, he's actually bringing something that he had previously received, something that was already in place. And we know that Paul had spent time with the apostles in Jerusalem, 35 AD. We've now got a very small window. And in fact, it goes further still, where at 32 AD, Paul sees the resurrected Jesus. He's converted. He spends time with the first Christians. And so what Paul received and passed on as first of importance is something that existed from the very beginning. This is not a myth, a legend, a lie that comes up some centuries later. From the very get-go, at the centre of the claim is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the look-back-to event before the Bible will speak of what is to come. Now, notice the content of this tradition that Paul received and passed on. It's summed up in verse 3 and 4 with four big that statements. He passes on, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Right here, actually is a number of evidences for the trustworthiness of this gospel claim. Let me run through them quickly. First of all, Christ died for our sins. We are not here this morning gathering as a church because a sick man was made well. Because a wounded man was resuscitated. We are here because a dead man decaying, rotting in the ground dead, was raised to life, never to die again. A man killed by professional executioners. Notice he was raised on the third day. That is, three days after his death on the Friday, if you inclusively count the Friday, on the Sunday he was raised. The tomb was empty. The reason we are here this morning, meaning at 10.30 on a Sunday morning, is significant. Not the 10.30 bit, but the, the Sunday bit, because... The Jews met on the Saturday to remember God, to read the Scriptures. How do you account for this sudden shift of day change from Saturday to Sunday? The resurrection. 
it brought a massive shift in the first followers of God the day that they would meet. Notice that both his death and his resurrection was according to the scriptures. That is, they weren't just regular events that just happened, like regular events just happen. They were, in one sense, regular events that had been foretold by the scriptures, that had been prophesied, that had been decreed centuries prior. One of the wonderful things about Christmas time that we see just how far back the gospel goes. And then fourthly, you have the appearances. Notice this, from the very first, this tradition, the gospel in a nutshell, has baked into it room for sceptics to listen. See, it doesn't just say that he died, that he was raised. It says, and that he appeared. The appearances are so critical to the gospel message because it is acknowledging that this is a message like nothing else. This is a claim about something that doesn't happen, that did happen. A dead man raised life. Firstly, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's Peter and the first apostles. And we read the gospel accounts, how this takes place, that these men who were locked behind doors for fear of the Jews who had just killed Jesus were going to come and get them. Just a few short weeks later, up in the city proclaiming, Jesus is alive, Lord of the universe. How do you explain that? The resurrection. They saw him, they spent time with him, they met him and so on. But it's not just the apostles that he appears to, is it? Verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Do you see again that with this claim of the resurrection, Paul, from the very get-go, is, is leaving room, anticipating a scepticism. This doesn't happen. Why would you give the detail that this Jesus raised to life appeared to 500 people, the bulk of whom are still alive, unless it was true? Why? Because the implication is they could go talk to them. They could go and prove you false. But from the very beginning, the claim of the resurrection is there, including the appearances. And remember that this all happened in the very geographic location of the events. So if you want to to create a following, a religion, a myth, a legend, you might talk about something that happened 400 years ago in the Amazon forest. This amazing thing happened. That's not at all what the Bible is doing, the New Testament is doing. They're talking about what happened 40 days earlier in the very city that they're in. And at the heart of the claim is an empty tomb of a man who was raised. You don't Make that kind of claim when the sceptics, when the enemies just have to walk around the corner, point to the body, it's all over. And yet, from the very beginning, in the very place that these claims happened, no one has been able to produce the body. How do you account for the empty tomb? There were lots of people who didn't want this claim to be true, yet they don't deny it. And in fact... The alternative theories to explain for the empty tomb, I want to put it to you, take more blind faith to believe than the fact that the Creator God raised Jesus to life, never to die again. There's just a taste of the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. 
a staggeringly unique event in history. And if this has pricked your interest, if you're still sceptical, do something about that. We run a series called Life, listen out to it in the new year, where we run through these evidences and more. So many people are just blown away. This is not about blind faith, spiritual feel-goodness. This is about something that really happened, the most staggering thing. So there's something of the look back to the event, the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus, before we now do the look forward. What will be written into your future chapters? Well, the first thing you can be sure that you don't need the Bible for is your death, is your mortality. An appointment in all our calendars that none of us can dodge. I'm reading this book at the moment called 4,000 Weeks. And it's a, it's a self-help time management book. Its subtitle is Time Management for Mortals. And I'm finding it staggering and striking, just the title alone, 4,000 Weeks. Why? Because that's the average number of weeks that each of us will live for. And it's striking, I'm finding, because it's a unit of measurement that you feel like should be a whole lot bigger. Especially if you're me, my age, I've used up more than half of them. I've got less than 2,000 weeks to go. And yet we keep ticking them off, ticking them off, get through this one, get through this one. Some of you have less than 100 weeks to go. Um, Some of you might not even make Christmas. I, I, I rock up to church some weeks and think you're a weekly miracle <laughs> that you are still here. And some of you admit that, acknowledge that. It's, it's coming. And it's coming quick. As those of you who are there are telling me, I'm even feeling I'm only halfway. 4,000 weeks. I'm not recommending the book to you. It does have some good wisdom But the problem with the book is its premise, which is actually anti-Christian, and its presumption is that your existence will only ever be 4,000 weeks. We're just a bunch of chemicals in a bag of skin that becomes fertiliser after 4,000 weeks, end of story. And so, the book's great advice is, surprise, surprise, spend those 4,000 weeks on whatever you find meaningful. Go for it. Not many left, get to it. It's actually a logic that the Bible agrees with, if that presumption were true. It's not. Have a look at verse 32. Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 4,000 weeks, baby, just get amongst it. You do you. Whatever pleasure is like for you. Because the Bible shouts back, goes, no, the premise is wrong. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The premise that you will only exist for 4,000 years is wrong. You are a creature, yes, but you are an everlasting creature. So that you will be you for eternity. And it will be an embodied eternity, either in glory or under condemnation. 
Listen to what Jesus says on this, John chapter 5. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Just notice that. Who is this Jesus with the power of his voice? will raise every human being from the grave. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. You will rise to glory or sentencing. Now, if you're worried about what Jesus means about just be good and God will accept you, no, no, no. You read further through the gospel and it's clear that no one is good. The work of God is this to believe in the one that he has sent, a saviour. There is no one good. We need a saviour to look to, to trust in who takes our sin. And so, hear this this morning, if you are not trusting in Jesus, you will live into eternity. You will be raised and justly sentenced. So, repent. Turn back to a saviour, which is how the Bible repeatedly uses the resurrection. Look at Paul in Acts 17. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice that. Not some people, somewhere, some ethnicities, some cultures, depending on how bad you've been. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice By the man he has appointed. Jesus said, that's me. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The biggest thing for you this morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus, is to repent, which is to turn to a saviour. Put your trust in him, who he is, what he has done for you, that you might have the hope of a very different resurrection eternity. One of glory. Let's spend the rest of our time considering that now. Resurrection in Christ. Which is tricky, can be tricky for us to wrap our heads around. Um, Prior to a few years ago, uh, we'd never taken our kids, our four kids, out of the state of New South Wales. Um, Our holidays had been to Nelson Bay and Crescent Head. And some of you might work out why that was. We were very happy to just live... A very simple life. That's all they knew. Um, the, the extent of their thrill rides, their roller coaster experience was the Gosford Showground. <laughs> I don't know if you've been there, it's, it's not much chop. I think they might have been the Easter show, not much better. Now imagine I say to them, hey kids, do you want to go to the Gold Coast? They'd be like, why would I care about the Gold Coast? Well, there's this thing called Movie World. And there are these rides that are... Now, they've got a category in their mind of a ride, of this tiny little Gosford showground thing. But then I show them the pictures online, movie world and the roller coaster rides. Wow! Can we go? Can we go? The Bible is a little bit like that when it comes to telling us of our future life in Christ. It trades on a category that we do know and connect with now in this experience to then... Talk about what will be true in the resurrection life, but 
amplified in a way that human language kind of bumps up against how much better, how much glorious it will be. One day we actually did sneak over the, uh, the border when lockdown opened. We were able to go to the theme parks and my kids just experienced how much bigger and better it really was. The thing about the resurrection life to come that this chapter especially spends a lot of time on, you can't avoid it, is that it's a physical one. What will your future be like in Christ? It will be a physical one. It will be an embodied one. Have a look at verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind, the splendor of the earthly body is another. So you've got, you got the glory of the roller coaster at the Gosford Showground and then the one of Movie World Next Level. It, it trades on this category of the body that we know and experience now blown up as a heavenly one. That doesn't sound right, does it? Not blown up, you know, much bigger, much grander, not destructive. Verse 40, now we've done the one, then we've gone, verse 42, he contrasts the, the two experiences of the body, the earthly one, the heavenly one, with four sets of contrasts. Now he's just used a metaphor previously about planting and sowing, you sow the seed which turns into a plant. The seed is not the plant but you don't get the plant without the seed being sown, so what goes down will then produce. Listen to his contrasts here. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. The body that is sown, that's this one that will go into the ground, is perishable. And we feel the decay long before that final week, don't we? The heavenly body will be raised imperishable. Never to die again, never to get sick again, never to wear and tear in its decay. The one that we're in now, perishable. I had this moment this morning, I got here early to church and as I got out of my car there's this guy running up the hill there, Terrigal Drive, who is just the buffest, most cut, fittest dude you have ever seen, shirt off. And I'm thinking all those thoughts that guys like me think of guys like that. (laughs) And I'm looking at him going, mate, perishable (laughs) 10 years 20 years gravity you'll have man boobs I'm not even going to (laughs) bother one way trajectory right perishable physically mentally emotionally every sphere we are so aware of just how perishable this body is contrasted with imperishable imperishable and I know that that can mean more for some of us can't you when I suspect compared generally to the 18 to 20 year old of whatever who'll hear about this tonight it's harder because you can you can get a, a sense where you're really nailing life can't you in that kind of age you feel like you, you've got a rocking body and you feel like this is it And then most of us who have lived past those weeks, clearly, (laughs) we get a sense of, oh, we have this growing sense of this is not it and a longing for what won't perish. The second contrast there, it's sown 
in dishonour. It is raised in glory. The dishonour particularly connecting to our father Adam, who on behalf of all humanity plunged us into sin, rejecting God, so that every son and daughter of Adam would experience dishonour from the beginning, being born into a world corrupted by sin. Not starting good, then going off, but part of, bound up in, the corruption of sin, shame. Notice the contrast? Glory. The resurrection completely swallows up the widest and deepest effects of the fall of humanity and indeed all of creation, so that all that will be left is glory. The next contrast is similar, weakness and power. The body of this life, the experience of this life, is one marked by weakness. There's a line in the carol last night. Did anyone else hear it? How good Colin and Carol's was awesome. And it was a line added to a way in a manger, which isn't in the original, but really helpful. It says, The sovereign of heaven, whom angels adore, is wrapped in the weakness of our mortal frame. The eternal Son of God, who angels adore, is wrapped in the weakness of of our mortal frame, God became flesh, became weak, became a man who would die. The contrast, power. Glorious power, holy power, God-honouring power, power that will only love and serve others. And so he rounds out the contrast in that fourth one, verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. I think this final contrast can actually be a confusing one for us on the surface because it, it sounds like this earthly experience is the natural one and then the one to come is a spiritual one and I don't like the sound of being this kind of wispy Casper the Ghost kind of experience. That's not what is being said here. The difference isn't between material and immaterial natural, spiritual, but rather a body that is made for this natural age, marked by weakness, shame, death, and a body that is made for the supernatural age, the spiritual age, the age with the Lord God, one that is spiritual and glorious and never to die. This is your future if you are following the Lord Jesus, if your trust is in him. It is more glorious than we can imagine. There's more to say, but we need to move on. But quickly, just a couple of questions that typically do come up for us as we imagine our future, our resurrection future. And especially when we read verses like 51. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Someone said that should be a sign put on the creche wall for all the new parents. Well, if I'm going to be so changed, will I still be me? If the resurrection is such a recreation, will it be me? Yes, you will be you. Why can we say that confidently? Because everything that is said of our resurrection takes its model from the Lord Jesus, who has been raised to life. The first fruits, verse 20, of those who have fallen asleep, who have died in him. You look to Jesus, what is true of his resurrection, it is true of yours to come. 
Jesus clearly was the same man. It begs the question, well, what will I remember in the new creation, in the resurrection life? Um, there, are, there are parts of our lives that we wish to forget. Will I remember? And again, the answer must be yes, if Jesus is the model. There is a continuity there. Jesus appeared to his disciples who, who at some points struggled to recognise him and then at other points, recognising the change, it's Jesus. It's the Lord. It's, it's our brother. It's our friend. They knew Jesus remembered his disciples. Jesus remembered his experience prior to his death with the disciples. And in fact, Jesus remembers the horror of his execution. Catch this. The resurrected body of Jesus, the glorified body of Jesus, the eternal body of Jesus that we've been reading of, it has the scars still on his body. Why would God do that? Why would he recreate this glorious eternal body and leave the marks of death on it? Surely, it's because we would always remember the cost that God paid to forgive us, to adopt us, to bring a salvation that we've been looking at these last few weeks. That there might never be a moment in eternity that we would forget the cross, the love of God in it. Which tells you this, even in the most horrible pain and suffering that we might long to forget, God will somehow redeem so fully that it will only be glorious. The most horrific event in history, the cross, remains on show for eternity. Even your greatest pain, God in the resurrection will redeem so fully that it will only be glorious. You will still be you. This is so different to pantheistic religions where the self is swallowed up into some greater impersonal reality and you just, you just become a part of that stardust, gone back. No, 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 no. God loves you. God made you. God has sent his son for you and you will endure into eternity with the Lord God. When does this future hope come? When are these chapters realised? Well, this and other passages are clear. It's at a particular moment, the return of Jesus. He's come once. We celebrate that at Christmas. He will return. Look at verse 51. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, some people will be alive when Jesus returns, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. When does this hope come? When Jesus blows full time on history. Done. Trumpet will sound. No one will miss it. He will return to do what he has promised, to raise every human being. That then raises the question, well, what happens in between if I do die? Because this, I want to put it to you, and other parts of the New Testament do make clear 
that our resurrection hope isn't realised immediately upon death. Uh, some people think, yeah, but God's out of time, and so don't we get taken out of time, and don't we... There are enough passages for us to suggest that our full and final salvation, resurrection hope, will wait to this day when the Lord Jesus returns. So what of that period? Well, I put to you, don't confuse the language of sleep that's here and elsewhere to mean soul sleep, no awareness of existence, rather than that referring to a, a temporary nature, a temporary state. As you go to bed and sleep, you will then get up again. During this period, what we can say with certainty and with hope is that we will be with the Lord Jesus. You, you are body and spirit. And so though your body will go into the ground, you will still be you and capable of relating, of experiencing, of relating to the Lord Jesus. We know that Hebrews 12, 23 says that as you put your trust in Jesus, you've come not to the mountain of Moses, but to the heavenly mountain where the spirits of the righteous made perfect dwell. So there's something about knowing God, being with God, yet still awaiting that full final day of the body. Paul elsewhere will describe this experience as gain, it's better than being in the body and away from the Lord, as being at home with the Lord, not away, which is better by far, says the Apostle Paul. And I suspect, I speculate, that that God has done this so that there would be this, this increased longing and waiting for the Lord Jesus to grow his church, to come back and return. That even those who have died participate in this unfolding full salvation that God is unfolding. Uh, that, that even those who have, been, uh, who have died before his return might participate in the longing, Revelation chapter 6. In the worship, Revelation chapter 6. Longing for the Jesus to come and bring our full final salvation. So, what do we do with all of this? Because we must do something. Knowing the future must shape our present. It's how we operate. It's how we understand reality. Let me just give you two things and the two things that Paul gives us, therefore the two things that the Holy Spirit gives us. And it's there in verse 58. Having given us the longest chapter on the resurrection in the New Testament, therefore, what do you do with it all? My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. There are all sorts of things that threaten to pull us away from this hope in the Lord Jesus as glorious it is. And no doubt you have or maybe are experiencing some of those things that threaten to pull. Rejection or ridicule from friends and family. Difficulty at work because you stand for Jesus, you won't compromise Jesus. Hardship in your life, health trouble that causes you to doubt the promises of God. Or possibly just ease and comfort that numb you to the fact that your best life is yet to come. There's a a whole bunch of things that threaten this hope. 
In fact, it's the purpose of him writing. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. I want to remind you of the gospel, which is why we do this every week, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So they did take their stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you to the end. Otherwise you've believed in vain. What do you do with all of this? Well, you come to follow Jesus if you are not yet doing that and you keep standing firm in your faith in the Lord Jesus. Whatever is going on for you. The tomb is empty. The gospel is true. Is your health failing? Stand firm. You will get a new body. You will get a new mind. Are your relationships fracturing and breaking? Stand firm. The Lord Jesus will renew all things. Christ has been raised to life. He has conquered sin, Satan and death. His victory is your victory. Keep the Jesus jacket on. How good was that? How good is our kids' ministry? Stand firm in a way that is homesick and hope-filled because God has told you how the future will go. And the second and final thing that he gives us in light of all of this, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. That's interesting at one level, isn't it? Let me tell you about all the hope of the resurrection, all of these words. You might expect him to say then, so go live your life. Don't worry about anything. You've got the hope of heaven. It'll all be okay. Just go live your life. Make the most of it. But that would be anti-resurrection. And I dare say anti-Christian. He doesn't say go live it up, go bludge. He says go work your guts out. We don't have enough time to really unpack what the work of the Lord here is, but let me be clear, it is not your job that you do as a career. It's got nothing to do with money. It's not the thing that we give so many and so much of our 4,000 weeks to. What is the work of the Lord? Though that work's needed and important, there is a particular and primary work, the work of the Lord, which is Jesus' work. What's his work? To save the world to make disciples, to have the gospel of who he is, what he's done, proclaimed, trusting that by his power people will receive, will be renewed, will have the hope of heaven. So in light of the resurrection, what does Paul say? Give yourself fully to that work. There are so many ways that you can give yourself to this work. And I don't dare to try and sum them up in a quick sentence. But what is key to know that every little bit of that work together, God uses and is using to do something quite profound. And so don't belittle your little bit, though you give, though you stretch, though it's big for you, it feels like nothing. Together, by the power of God, it is something. The giving of your prayers, will you carve out time to do that? The giving of your time and your energy. The giving of your money so that it hurts, so that you can't do things that you would otherwise do. The inviting of people to things that we are running. Have you noticed whilst the rest of the coast and culture kind of slows down over Christmas, we as church ramp up on purpose. Who can you invite next week to Summerfest that people might hear this word? None of it is in vain. Why? Because the tomb is empty. 
Jesus rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. Those in Christ will live forever in glorified resurrection bodies, their worship enduring forever. And so every scrap of work we give ourselves to now in these short few weeks will return a dividend to the Lord Jesus that we can't compare as we're about his work to bring salvation to the world. So we wrap up our series with that word, salvation. What's God on about? Salvation. It's full. It's rich. How good has it been to work our way through it these bunch of weeks? I want to pause as the band comes up to lead us in song and give you the opportunity with a bit of silence that doesn't happen much to reflect on what we've heard. What would you bring before the Lord? How would you change your life? How will you let this stir your hope for heaven?